Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 30th of November. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Independent reported yesterday on a group of heavies who have taken it on themselves to police areas in Virginia County Cavan and also in Trim and Kells in County Meath. The vigilantes are said to be members of the IRSP. According to the Irish Independent, uh, the Irish Republican Socialist Party is the political wing of the INLA. In his report, Ken Foy says some members of this group would have been close associates of Alan Ryan. Ryan was the leader of the real IRA when he was shot dead in 2012. IRSP members are now said to be patrolling housing estates, clamping down on antisocial behaviour. The Independent reports too on how support is growing for this group of vigilantes and how leaflet drops and social media is promoting the group. Let's speak uh, to local TD, Patrick O'Bean, who's uh, the leader and founder of AIM2 and a TD for Meath West. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I know you told the paper yesterday that uh, you're uh, very concerned about this situation. This group is said to have close links to the INLA in Straban and County Tyrone as well. And there's two incidents uh, to talk about uh, in very recent times. Uh, Maybe we can start with those uh, in Kells uh, nearly three weeks ago on the 10th of November uh, and then a follow-up incident uh, that took place on the 13th of November. Yeah, so Meath has uh, suffered significantly from crime and antisocial behaviour for for many years now and indeed in some of the towns in the county um, crime and drugs uh, are increasing and that's happening for a number of different social reasons, but it's also happening because there's a serious lack of Gardaí in County Meath. Meath has got the lowest number of Gardaí uh, in, of any county in the country per capita. So right now in Meath, there's one Garda for every 582 citizens. And if you go to our next-door neighbours in West Meath, there'd be one Garda for every 320 citizens. Limerick and Clare, many other counties, have far more Gardaí than we do uh, per capita. And that's having a major effect on large swathes of County Meath. I know of one section of Meath, and on a Sunday, if you travel from one town to another 20 miles away, 
um, there's only five Gardaí on duty and if two of those Gardaí get uh, pulled out on, a, on an arrest for example there isn't enough Gardaí to answer the phones uh, in that part of County Meath I won't even name it because I don't want to draw to people's attention um, but there is a serious problem with the lack of Gardaí uh, in the county um, and as a result what we have now is, is a vacuum uh, that's mm. starting to arise in certain parts uh, of the county and this is really frustrating because Helen McEntee is the Minister for Justice she is the Minister that actually has power in and influence uh, over uh, garden numbers and in her own uh, uh, constituency in, in the towns of Kells we have you know communities now witnessing vigilante activity uh, for that lack of guardy. Okay and you're talking about areas where there's just five guards to police the uh, entire area and here we're talking about a story where it seems like five men in Balaclavas kicked uh, the living daylights out of three 14 year old boys Take us back to that incident, though, that happened before the 14-year-olds uh, were beaten up uh, on the 10th of November in Magdalen Court. What happened there? Yeah, m- my understanding is that um, the IRSP uh, have been uh, in and around these housing estates over, over recent times, and uh, they have um, been responding to some um, citizens in these estates who have been complaining about antisocial behaviour. And I believe in this particular estate, a number of, uh, of, of residents uh, had issues with young people causing difficulties with, uh, with regards to antisocial behaviour. And as a result, the uh, members of the IRSP, it's alleged, went in and um, saw three young fellas uh, who were standing at the Grove. Um, and right. it's, it's alleged that they were badly beaten by, by five men mm. who actually threatened to kill them uh, in relation to the actions uh, that they were, they were involved in. But if you talk to parents in the area, they say that these three uh, young boys weren't involved in the antisocial behaviour. It was a case of mistaken identity. And really? that's, yeah. that's one of the difficulties with regards to vigilante is that it's, it's summary justice. Is that, you know, people, whether they're innocent or guilty, don't get an opportunity to defend themselves or, or, or their rights in any ways. Uh, and oftentimes the wrong people um, are, are physically damaged uh, as a result of um, the anti uh, the vigilante behaviour. Mm. Um, and what we're calling, and aim too, is that we're calling for the Gardaí and the Commissioner and the Minister to actually get real around um, policing these uh, estates, because as long as these estates are not being properly policed, and as long as this antisocial be- behaviour is happening, there's going to be that vacuum, and some people, unfortunately, will turn to groups such as this uh, to fill that vacuum. Right. That, that was Hedford Grove, uh, but what happened in Hedford Grove uh, was, uh, uh, as a result, was it not, of what happened a few days previously in Magdalen Court? I'm, I'm not aware of the full details of what happened in Magdalen Court. I, it, it was um, residents in Hedford Grove that contacted myself uh, in relation to this uh, straight after it happened. And as a result, uh, we went to uh, the authorities to seek we seek justice and to make sure that the, the uh, that Hedford Grove was properly policed uh, in future. Um, so the Magdalen Court uh, incident, I don't have the details on that. Mm, and uh, these are fellas from Dublin. Are they living in the area? It, it, it's important to say that there's a lot of allegations being made around who are these individuals. So the, the IRSP, the Irish Republican Socialist Party, is a party that has um, had links with the INLA uh, for, for many, many years. Um, they were a splinter group uh, of the officials way back in, in, in the early 70s. Uh, they have been functioning since the early 70s, um, and they've had some strongholds in some parts of the north, but they've never really had any kind of political uh, 
to get people elected. Um, there's, you know, while I, I understand that the INLA are not on um, on full ceasefire, they have recognised that there's no logic in going back to armed conflict. Um, but the, there have been allegations that people within the INLA have been mixed up with all sorts of crime and antisocial behaviour and, and drug dealing and uh, etc. And the, the problem when you get to the dissident groups such as this is that there's there's, there's nearly the, the continuity INLA and the real INLA and, and, and a whole lot of different organisations that uh, are functioning uh, who use the same names. But it looks like this particular organisation, the IRSP, they have a Facebook page uh, for Cavan and Meath, uh, and they're not they're not shy in relation to reporting what they're doing. Now they're obviously not reporting uh, particular criminal activities like assaults, um, but they are reporting that they're going into states such as Headford Grove and they're forcing. Uh, youths to leave the area um, and it, it, it strikes me that if they're doing that they're doing that to to recruit and to mm. gain political advantage right. um, so it, it's I was just going to ask you what the motivation for it was uh, to recruit to what? To a political organisation or to a paramilitary organisation or to a vigilante organisation? Well it, it, it's hard to know um, but it, it, it strikes me my instinct in this would be that they're recruiting to a political organisation and they're looking to gain um, membership to potentially maybe um, uh, compete in elections uh, in future um, and you know, like it, it, it is a, a gap that's been left, unfortunately, there by the authorities because the authorities won't police County Meath. Mm. I know, for, for example, people who go to bed in this county with, with a knife under their pillow. I know of uh, parts of Meath where there's been machete attacks in housing estates during the day. You know, a couple of years ago, we had petrol bombs thrown at the Trim uh, uh, Court. And there is, there is an incredible undercurrent of uh, crime and antisocial behaviour and that's happening, you know, in, in certain estates. And there, there are estates, unfortunately, from lower uh, economic earnings uh, estates. They're being, they're, they're being ignored by uh, the police because the police, the Gardaí, don't have the necessary mm. resources to go into them. I know of uh, housing estates where, you know, parents pray for rain so that the, the drug dealers, you know, are not uh, on the greens uh, on a Sunday. And then when they call the Gardaí, you know, the, the Gardaí come to three hours later when the, the drug dealers are gone. And how does this policing operate? Is it that somebody is concerned and they make contact with the IRSP and they say, I, I think Michael Reid and Patrick Tobin and Joe Bloggs are selling drugs. And then the IRSP send a few fellows around with baseball bats. Yeah, it, it, it's been reported um, that the uh, many people who are involved in these uh, organisations uh, have moved out of Dublin in recent years. You know, like m- much of the population, there's been a, a wave of, of new residents uh, in Cavan and Meath, uh, originally from Dublin. So these people are now resident in Cavan and, and, and Meath, and they are hearing on the grapevine that there are difficulties in the states. They're, they're going around knocking on doors, dropping leaflets and canvassing anyway. So, you know, anybody that's, you know, experience of, of knocking on doors, you'll be told very, very quickly by residents in a, in a state, you know, if there's a problem with antisocial behaviour, they'll be on the tip of their tongues. So these people are, are obviously gleaning that information just by their, their, their political activism in the local area. And as a result, then they're, they're seeking to respond to it. Mm. Um, and, but the manner that they are responding to it is is a dangerous uh, manner. First of all, 
um, it, ha- it is blind to justice. It is blind to right and wrong. It's blind to who's uh, been involved and who isn't. And here we are, we're, we're told that uh, three boys were very seriously assaulted. And those types of assaults, the, the damage that they can do can last forever. Not just, you know, in, in physical uh, difficulties with maybe people getting blows to the eyes or, or, or blows to the head, but obviously the psychological uh, fears that can be created by a, a person being attacked uh, in such a manner, five grown men uh, potentially in, in, in balaclavas uh, attacking three boys, that will leave fear uh, in those young fellas uh, for life. There's and a man in County Cavan, uh, which, uh, or who Camp Foy reported on yesterday, he's uh, since uh, deceased. It's a very, very disturbing part of the story, and we don't want to put two and two together and come up with God knows what. Uh, but this man has died in a car crash, but before he passed away, Uh, The Irish Independent reported uh, that the IRSP called to his house uh, in Virginia uh, for a national who they described as a child groomer on their social media platforms. Now, as I say, that man has since died, uh, but the Irish Independent reports uh, that the Gardaí have said that there was no tangible evidence that the man was engaged in offences that he was accused of. And and, and this is the the difficulty with this is that it... First of all, it can be rumour and supposition, allegations, and also the, the, what can creep into these situations is personal animosity. So a, a person who has a grudge against an individual can very quickly spread rumours about a, an individual, uh, and those rumours gain traction, and an organisation such as this comes in, uh, maybe even in their own minds thinking that they're doing this for the best reasons, um, but they're doing it uh, without any uh, skills of investigation. And remember, that the whole idea that we live in a liberal democracy is because it is important that people are innocent until proven guilty. And if we don't have some kind of a system which allows for uh, people to whom allegations are made against to defend themselves, we're always going to have miscarriages of justice. And, and this organization styles itself as a Republican organization. And like Republicans, you know, throughout the North have, have experienced you know, mm. hundreds of, of, of situations of uh, injustices created against them. And, you know, for, for Republicans to replicate that now uh, against fellow citizens is absolutely wrong. Absolutely there's, wrong. There's talk, too, of a, a feud uh, with uh, some older members of the INLA and uh, these new members of the IRSP in County Cavanagh. I think the most ironic part of uh, the story in the Irish Independent yesterday was uh, that one of the main players in this group uh, suspected of importing drugs from England, yet uh, they're policing uh, the sale of drugs uh, by teenagers on the streets. And and in the north, for many years, uh, allegations were made against both loyalists and some of these splinter groups, and um, that in many ways their antisocial behaviour activities were tools to which they could actually control markets. Uh, so, in other words, that if they if a, a group moved in, they could actually control the drug market in a particular area. Uh, and at the same time, the, the, one of the ways that they would free themselves of competitors in that drug market, the, the ODC, if you like, uh, the ordinary decent criminals who are operating that space, uh, would be to, to do it under the banner uh, of fighting uh, against crime and antisocial behaviour. Just, just to, to residents mm. who are living in, 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 in these estates, I would, I would appeal to them to uh, 
come to the Gardaí or to an elected representative living in their area or, 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 or to myself uh, if they have specific allegations against uh, people who are involved in antisocial behaviour in their estates because there are things that can be done. You know, neighbourhood watch schemes can be built and uh, we can get the Gardaí into those estates um, to give... Uh, particular training courses and how you know uh, what uh, WhatsApp groups and text alerts uh, can be created, and we can put pressure on the guardies to start carrying out regular patrols of those areas, so that these people live uh, in, in safety and don't live in fear. Because winter time is is, is probably the worst time um, for these uh, families the because nights, under yeah. under darkness yeah. Yeah. in many corners yeah. of estates that are not lit properly, uh, we, we see kids. Uh, uh, hanging out and congregating. And many of those kids are, are decent kids, but they just don't have alternatives with regards to social outlets, especially at this time of, of COVID, uh, where a lot of the, the normal social outlets are, are starting to, okay. to, to be closed down. But I would appeal to people in those estates, do your best to use the elected reps around you to, to fix this. Don't turn to, to vigilantes. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Patrick Tobin, founder and leader of the Ain2 Party at TD in Midwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. The People's Vaccine Alliance says that the fairest and most effective way of ending this pandemic is to ensure that everyone everywhere has access to COVID-19 vaccines, tests and treatments and free of charge. Uh, the group will be protesting outside of Leinster House uh, today. And let's speak uh, to one of its members, Jim Clarkin, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Oxfam Ireland. And a uh, very good morning to you, Jim, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Oxfam, along with many other NGOs, making up uh, this organisation, which really is a, a worldwide effort to bring about uh, access uh, and accessibility to uh, vaccines across the world, uh, something that uh, we've been failing to do up to this point, and I suppose we're reaping the rewards of that uh, in uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, upsurge of uh, this new variant, Omicron. That's exactly right. So uh, th- this is an alliance including NGOs and also uh, medical practitioners, doctors for vaccine equity and the access to medicines Ireland groups. So we have uh, scientists, uh, medical experts and so on from Ireland and across the world who've been involved in this movement. And what we're saying is that, you know, and we've said this for a long time now, that if we don't get a handle on the pandemic globally, it'll continue to to come back. It'll continue to affect the most vulnerable in the world and everybody in the world. And we've seen again in this last week what has happened. So, you know, we we know that um, by the end of this year, it's likely that only 8% of people in developing countries will have had a single dose. Uh, and, you know, that's a very, very long way from where it is in the global north. So, And it could know, be 2023 20, before some healthcare workers or people uh, with uh, underlying problems or elderly people will get their first dose of vaccine. Indeed. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about even the most the, the most vulnerable in, in some societies, as well as frontline healthcare professionals who are dying. And bear in mind that in many, many poor countries, there are limited numbers of, of qualified uh, frontline healthcare professionals. So, it has an, is having a hugely uh, a tragic impact uh, in developing countries. And of course, you know, the, the death rates are growing. And, you know, oftentimes in, in poor countries, it's not clear. So the, the, the statistics and the measures wouldn't be quite as, as accurate or as, you know, we wouldn't, they wouldn't have the scale of, of uh, capacity to do that kind of work. So we, mm. we don't actually know what, what the effect of it is. But we do know that, uh, that unless the whole world is vaccinated, we're going to continue to see new variants and we're going to continue to see 
terrible human suffering, which is unnecessary. Because what we're saying is that the solution has been staring us in the face. We've been calling for this for a long time. The vaccine, uh, intellectual property and the know-how to produce the vaccines is available and it should be made available to generic companies in, in companies across across the world. Um, the, it's important to remember that these vaccines were developed using billions of dollars and euros of public funding. So they, they're a public good. You know, there is an, uh, <clears throat> we get an argument from the pharmaceutical industry saying, well, look, you know, we spent a lot on these. Sure, but there's been a huge amount of public money put into this. This is a once in a hundred years phenomenon, this pandemic. And, you know, all, all traditional rules need to be considered and need to be re-looked at. And what we're saying here is that there's a, there's a mechanism within the World Trade Organization rules. It's called TRIPS, which allows for a temporary waiver. I'm not talking about permanent, mm-hmm. but a temporary waiver of intellectual property rules so that we can get that scale up of production as fast as possible so that everybody in the world can get vaccinated. And is that what you're hoping to achieve today, to put pressure on the Irish government, uh, to put pressure uh, on pharmaceutical companies uh, to sign up to waiving uh, the intellectual properties? Because uh, there is goodwill. It's uh, absolutely true in this country. I mean, Irish people have donated a lot of vaccines through the UNICEF programme, uh, get a vaccine, give a vaccine. Uh, and the Irish government uh, has uh, done quite a, a bit. I see 500,000 COVID-19 vaccines uh, arrived in Nigeria yesterday. Well, we've said all along that you're not going to you're not going to donate your way out of this. There just sim- simply isn't uh, vaccine um, capacity. I mean, look, the the whole world is going to need, by the looks of it, boosters and possibly ongoing boosters. We don't know, but I mean, if that's three for everybody in the world, even as it is, we're nowhere near reaching that. And donating a few, and I know the numbers sound big, but when you think about the global scale of this. It's, it's, it's crumbs from the table. So what we need to see is a scale-up of production, and we need to see production uh, being, being delivered at low cost, which can be done by generic companies. And there are many of them which have been identified in developing countries and in other parts of the world that would be ready and willing to produce these vaccines at scale very quickly. And I take it uh, a lot of people have made a lot of money out of the vaccines. Well, we, we're seeing multiple billionaires have been created mm. from this in these companies. And look, you know, there's a profit motive for companies, and nobody's questioning that, or mm. at least, we're, you know, you know. But but you're not asking the, you're not asking them to give the vaccines away. You're just asking them. No, no uh, well, and look, to make it possible for somebody else to produce them. Well, there's an obscenity to people be, becoming billionaires when people will be dying because of this disease. So, I mean, there is, you know, there'll be plenty of money to be made for everybody. That's, you know, from a commercial point of view, the, the, the demand for this is likely to go on for, unfortunately, a long time, as we, as we suspect. But right now, there is a solution to this global vaccine inequity, which is, which is obvious. And it means sharing the, the intellectual property and the know-how with these companies uh, in a way that works and that can produce, you know, mass vaccine rollout at, at the scale that's needed. Otherwise, this yeah. will keep coming back to us. It, it's yeah. not just, I mean, obviously, from our perspective, we're really concerned about people in, in poor countries in the developing yeah. world. Yeah. But actually, it's, we're shooting ourselves in the foot because, I mean, these, these variants will keep coming back. They'll keep affecting us and our lifestyles and our yeah. economies up in the global north as well. So it doesn't make any sense from anybody. They'll mutate in such a way that the vaccines uh, that we thought were protecting us will no longer be as uh, effective. Uh, there's a very interesting thing that's been said in South Africa as well about this new variant uh, because uh, so few people are vaccinated there and so many people have HIV. 
uh, and uh, that because they're immunocompromised, that when they catch COVID, they have COVID for a very long time, in some circumstances up to 11 months. And what happens then is that the virus is in the body, the virus is fighting the body, the body is fighting the virus, uh, and so on and so forth, and goes back and forth until such a stage that the virus mutates in such a way that it's different in terms of its construction uh, in uh, how the vaccines will tackle it. And that's why it's mutating or one of the reasons why it might be mutating and coming back to us in a different way that we can't cope with it. Well, can, and can you imagine if those people had been vaccinated at the same time as yep. the rest of us were? How, how this could have arrested that spread and that, that rapid development of it. And the HIV AIDS uh, example that you or you mentioned, mm. it is a very interesting example. When HIV AIDS was a, was a global pandemic in itself, um, we were told at the time, no, you couldn't possibly share the, the medical know-how. Oh, country, other companies won't be able to make it. Developing countries couldn't possibly make it. And it would, it would upset the whole system of making medication. And that was rubbish. I mean, we campaigned for that for years. Those, those drugs were made generic. They're now, there are millions of people living healthy, normal lives across the world using ARVs thanks to the medical developments that were made and thanks to the sharing of those, of those medications. So mm. it's, we, we've seen that it works. It needs to be done again. Unfortunately, Ireland and the European Union are resisting this. The US is supporting it and 100 countries across the world are supporting it. So there's, there's no reason for Ireland and the, and the EU to continue to support this. It's untenable, it's immoral and it's going to cause vast, vast human suffering that's unnecessary. Thanks for talking to us uh, this morning. Jim Clark and CEO of Oxfam Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the National Women's Council has uh, published a report called Improving the Healthcare Outcomes and Experiences of the Healthcare System for Marginalised Women. It was commissioned by the Department of Health and it takes a look at different groups of women in this country who have distinct healthcare needs but face barriers to accessing good care. The report is based on focus groups. There were 50 women who identified as disabled, of minority ethnicity, as a survivor of domestic abuse or from a disadvantaged area who took part in the system. And uh, the Women's Council is calling for reform, saying uh, that uh, there has to be systemic change in the system. Let's hear more about this. Alana Ryan is uh, the Women's Health Coordinator with uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Good morning to you, Alana. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, you're saying that there's a, a need to tackle an unconscious bias in uh, the system to create a culture of care. That seems in itself a, a very strong criticism. I think that the stories that the women share really do speak to a need for us all to think more about what we bring into our interactions and the biases that we have. And I think what came through very strongly across all four of the workshops was that um, the practitioners were in some cases very rushed and um, unable to, to support the women in their needs fully. And what we saw from the stories that were shared was that there was this kind of latent gender bias, uh, which was compounded when it was younger women, when it was disabled women. For example, one young disabled woman uh, spoke about how she went into um, a consultation with a practitioner and explained that sex was painful. And, you know, I was seeking help and support for that. And 
the the uh, doctor said to her, well, you know, that's just the way you're built. There's nothing we can do for you. And, you know, it's that kind of attitude that we really need to, to um, try to, to address in, mm-hmm. in the opportunity of the action plan. And I, I take it that in that circumstance, uh, there was something that could have been done, uh, but there was this bias uh, or she wasn't uh, taken as seriously as she might have been. I think so. And I think, you know, what um, she experienced as a, as a younger disabled woman also chimed with the experiences of women of colour, um, women of migrant background. We were we were also seeing that uh, women in the marginalised, uh, uh, socially deprived communities group also flagged that for them, uh, there was there was a kind of a barrier sometimes in terms of the way um, accessible pamphlets were presented. You know, one woman says, you know, you really do have to be very book smart in her own words to to be able to understand and and progress with the care package. And she was saying, in her case, she absolutely was, and she understood what to do. But she was thinking, for many others out there, there was this kind of baseline of you know needing to have a high level of education a high level of um, literacy to be able to engage with the materials and to be able to to progress that care plan and ultimately in her case uh, she could do that but she was worried about what the impact was for other women who may not have had that same opportunity um, and who may not have progressed to third mm. level or, or gone to college. God that's bizarre isn't it I mean to go to the doctor it's uh, their education that you'd be hoping to draw on but you're saying that there's a gender bias in healthcare anyway uh, but less so if you're white middle class and uh, you're not disabled I think so I think you know ultimately it's about the cultural capital and the way that we can go into interactions as middle class white women and speak confidently to our needs and be um, I suppose enabled by society as a whole for our voice to be heard and we have to realise that there are multiple and um, overlapping barriers for other women, for mm. women of colour, for disabled women, for women in the asylum system, for travellers and all of those barriers stack up and, and really um, I suppose limit the, the the capacity for their voices to be heard or for their needs to be met and really with this action plan we need to recognise that care isn't delivered in a vacuum and that the care that women receive is often uh, determined by those broader kind of social narratives and social uh, social pressures. So I really think that we need to think very carefully about creating an action plan and giving a training and support package which is alert to those biases and tries to, to mitigate them. Right. Uh, another group of women uh, you spoke to were survivors of uh, domestic abuse and I intentionally didn't uh, mention them in uh, the last question because domestic abuse doesn't know any barriers. Uh, it doesn't recognise skin colour or religion or nationality or social standing or any of uh, these things uh, so what's the experience of uh, the women who've gone to the healthcare system looking for help after suffering domestic abuse well I mean like like with all the workshops it was mixed some some women did have very positive experiences where they had a really supportive GP who was there for them but um, you know of the women and there were nine women who, who spoke to us in this workshop it was very concerning that uh, 
in many cases, the signs of coercive control, the manifestations of domestic abuse were not being picked up on. And uh, women spoke very frankly about how the ex-partners, the, the partners who were perpetrators of violence, they had successfully managed to manipulate the system uh, and not just, you know, healthcare practitioners, but also in relation to child protection services and social care um, to, to believe the men and to, to ultimately believe their narrative. And for, for those women, that was really compounding their trauma. Uh, because it was it was yeah. implying that the whole system was was not listening to their their voice or not creating space for them yeah. to to speak, and and that's really concerning. Oh, of course, I can imagine. So it must feel like abuse on top of abuse. Uh, you've made a long list of recommendations. Maybe you could talk us through some of them very quickly, if you would, Alana. Yes, and I think I think you you kind of addressed it there in in the first set of questions. Really, I think a lot of it is a really around the unconscious bias training, and really creating the space for practitioners to recognise the care is not delivered in a vacuum, and that we all need to really think very critically about. Um, how we support women with a diverse uh, range of needs and who are coming from a diverse range of backgrounds. And that means more cultural competency, challenging, um, you know, uh, narratives around disability, challenging, um, you know, racism in relation to to travellers and uh, women of minority ethnicity and having greater awareness and education around how domestic abuse manifests and how distinct and individual some of the the manifestations Mm. can be and being alert to that. And I guess some of these prejudices exist outside of the health system so that when people go looking for health care, they uh, find that they exist there as well. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, this is really um, about society as a whole and how all of us are carrying potential biases around with us, but when women go into healthcare settings, it does seem as though those biases are shaping their experience of care and, and the care that they are receiving, and that is really concerning. So we do need to think very carefully about creating the space to bridge the gap between practitioners and service users, particularly when they're from marginalised communities and they may not have had as much of a platform to speak about their particular needs and and what they want to have um, out of the healthcare system. And so I think it's really about trying to create a training and support package which really um, allows for women as experts by experience to come in and speak about um, their particular needs and how um, they feel that the system could be more supportive of that so that we have less of a barrier or less of a gap between the professionals and and those who need care. Very good. Alana, nice to talk to you. Thank you for speaking to us and joining us on the programme today. Alana Ryan is the Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. To a speech given by the Director General of the World Health Organisation to the World Health Assembly yesterday. I'd like to read a little bit of it to you, if I can. Dr Tedros Adam Gabriessa said, Everybody knows that pestilences have a way of recurring in the world. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet always plagues and wars take people equally by surprise. Those words were written by the French writer Albert Camus in his classic novel La Peste, The Plague, 
1947. 74 years later, they have a disturbing pre-science. Outbreaks, epidemics and pandemics are a fact of nature and a recurring feature of recorded history from the Plague of Athens in 430 BC to the Black Death, the 1918 influenza pandemic and now COVID-19. But that does not mean we are helpless to prevent them, prepare for them or mitigate their impact. We are not prisoners of fate or nature. More than any humans in history, we have the ability to anticipate pandemics, to prepare for them, to unravel the genetics of pathogens, to detect them at their earliest stages, to prevent them spiralling into global disasters and to respond when they do. And yet, here we are, entering the third year of the most acute health crisis in a century and the world remains in its grip. The pestilence, one that we can prevent, detect and treat, continues to cast a long shadow over the world. Instead of meeting in the aftermath of the pandemic, we are meeting as a fresh wave of cases and deaths crashes into Europe with untold and uncounted deaths around the world. And although other regions are seeing declining or stable trends, if there's one thing we have learned, it's that no region, no country, no community and no individual is safe until we are all safe. The emergence of the highly mutated Omicron variant underlines just how perilous and precarious our situation is. Omicron demonstrates just why the world needs a new accord on pandemics. Our current system disincentivizes countries from alerting others to threats that will inevitably land on their shores. We don't yet know whether Omicron is associated with more transmission more severe disease, more risk of reinfections, or more risk of evading vaccines. Scientists at WHO and around the world are working urgently to answer these questions. We shouldn't need another wake-up call. We should all be wide awake to the threat of this virus. We're living through a cycle of panic and neglect. Hard-won gains could vanish in an instant. Our most immediate task, therefore, is to end this pandemic. Indeed, our ability to end this pandemic is a test of our collective ability to prevent, respond effectively to future pandemics because the same principles apply. Courageous and compassionate leadership, fidelity to science, generosity in sharing the fruits of research, and an unshakable commitment to equity and solidarity. If we cannot apply those principles now to tame COVID-19, how can we hope to prevent history repeating? Quoting the French philosopher Albert Camus, Dr. Tedros said, what's true of all the evils in the world is true of the plague as well. It helps men and women to rise above themselves. In the aftermath of the Second World War, our forebears rose above themselves to found the United Nations and the World Health Organization. Now is our moment, he said, to rise 
above this pandemic, to rise above the impulses of isolationism, to rise above rivalry, suspicion and mistrust, to rise above the nearsightedness of election cycles and media cycles, to build on the legacy from which we have all benefited and to leave a new legacy for the generations who will follow. Let it be said, decades from now, when each of us is nothing more than photographs and memories, that we left the world a healthier, safer, fairer place than we found it. That, uh, as I said, was uh, the address or part of uh, the address given by Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, uh, the WHO Director General, to the World Health Assembly yesterday. Minister, there's many, many things that we can't change of the past, even though we would want to, but we can't. The past sometimes is the past, and the present is the present. And, the, the, and survivors of mother and baby institutions, it was a deeply, deeply painful past. And mother and baby homes or institutions uh, were an institution of the state and the Catholic Church. And they were for fallen women, quote unquote, to be banished and to be punished for the crimes of having children some of wedlock. This is uh, People Before Prophet TD, Gino Kenny. Gino was speaking uh, to a debate on uh, the redress scheme for survivors of mothers and baby homes in uh, the Dáil last week. And he says many flaws exist in this scheme, particularly, he says, the arbitrary nature around uh, the time that people spent in uh, the institutions. He says he doesn't understand why there'll be no compensation for people who spent six months in an institution. He told the minister, that this is an insult. And I'm not blaming you personally, um, because you weren't to blame for the crimes of the past, but you can readdress the kind of uh, the future. And Gino Kenny told the doll that he has a very personal interest in all of this. And the reason why I say I have personal... um, uh, My mother uh, gave evidence in the Commission of Investigation, and my mother spent a period of time in one of the institutions... Um, and it was extremely traumatic, very traumatic for my mother and my sister, which um, I would meet eventually uh, over a period of time. And my mother's account is quite harrowing. Her baby daughter was taken away from her, and not to see her daughter for 30-odd years. And I'll, remember, I'll always remember to the day I die, of when my mother find out, found out that you know she was going to meet her daughter again. I'll never forget it. I thought um, my mother was, well, she was crying and kind of joyous in one sense that eventually, you know, the daughter that was taken away from her, she was going to meet again. And it was uh, a very painful um, time in all our lives. And so, in some ways, the, kind of the juxtaposition of that, but also meeting, you know, a person that my mother thought was gone and uh, you know we, 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 we met her again uh, so Minister there's there's a lot to be said you know in relation to what has happened you know um, and there's, there's so much pain out there in relation to what has happened um, but I think in some ways in some ways uh, the scheme can readdress some of the financial um, compensations in relation to 
those women that went through that this pretty pretty horrible uh, process, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, the women that went through them institutions will have some sort of, um, I suppose, in their own minds, uh, they were kind of recognised by the state the terrible wrongs that were done to them, the terrible wrongs that can't, in some ways, can't be reversed. Um, but at least, you know, the state have said, you know, this was the terrible wrongs and we're, we'll try to make them right. People Before Prophet TD, Gino Kenny. Very personal story and spoken from the heart. Now, were you listening to us yesterday? If you were, you might remember we were talking about uh, these speed ramps. Or were they pedestrian crossings? Or were pedestrians safe walking out in front of cars? Or should cars stop for pedestrians if they do walk out in front of them, even though it's not a pedestrian crossing? It looks like a speed ramp, but it looks like a pedestrian crossing to a pedestrian. And nobody seemed to know which was which. We did ask Louth County Council, and I told you that if we heard from Louth County Council, uh, because they hadn't responded to us yesterday, that we would bring you their response today. Uh, and I'm not sure it's any less confusing. Uh, Louth County Council says these are courtesy pedestrian crossings. Uh, this is the name of them, a courtesy pedestrian crossing. Now, that might give you the impression that the pedestrian has right of way, because this is what it comes down to. If you don't know who has right of way, you're into a dangerous situation. But anyway, uh, let me read the statement from the council. These are courtesy pedestrian crossings. A courtesy crossing is a raised crossing in the road that drivers aren't required to stop for, but it allows for a safer place to stop if pedestrians do want to cross. The courtesy crossing can subtly direct pedestrians to attempt to cross in a specific place. So, they're courtesy pedestrian crossings, but drivers don't have to stop. Make of that what you will. I have a feeling we will be hearing a little bit more about those crossings. They have caused some consternation. Thanks to Rose and Dundalk, who's been in touch with us. She says, realistically speaking, if the government wants people to take antigen tests, they should be provided free of charge. Unfortunately, not everyone has spare money to be forking out on these tests, especially if you have a big family and you have to test everyone in the family. Uh, we'd uh, Tommy from Dramin in touch, who says he got his booster vaccine. He's delighted to get it and he'll probably have to get another. But these big pharma companies, uh, they know that there is no profits in a cure. They are making billions of people. You'd wonder if they really wanted to find a cure for certain illnesses. Thank you indeed, uh, Tommy, for sharing that with us. Uh, Mary in County Mead in touch with us today as well. And she just wants to say about the health service, it is deplorable. She went for a breast check to her GP a month uh, this Thursday and thankfully she didn't find a lump but she says I'm having burning sensations so she's sending me away for a precautionary mammogram because I'm over 60. Well that sounds like a prudent approach I have to say uh, Mary uh, but thanks uh, for sharing your story with us. I think realistically speaking uh, when we get a health scare we get scared and then we start talking about the health service being deplorable but all in all I think there's an awful lot of good people doing an awful lot of good work in the health service. Joanne has been in touch with us and she says she doesn't understand why parents are being asked to reduce their children's social contacts when they're still in school. 
playing sport and so on. They're out and about anyway. Uh, another call to us, or a text actually, that comes uh, to us this morning um, on um, some of, uh, just finding my screen here, I beg your pardon, uh, from a person in Wilkinstown who was in touch with us about antisocial behaviour. They say there's so much antisocial behaviour going on and it's not just in the towns but out in Wilkinstown and Gibstown areas and especially in between. When we reported to the Gardaí, they say there's nothing they can do. Uh, that's a, a listener who calls themselves a fed up listener in the Wilkinstown area. Thank you for your texts. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, members of uh, NEFIT uh, met with uh, the leaders of uh, the three government parties and uh, the Minister for Health yesterday. They'll take that conversation on to a full meeting of uh, Cabinet today to make some final decisions and announcements on where to go to next. And in particular, in their minds will be this new variant, Omicron. Let's uh, speak uh, to uh, the shadow uh, Minister for Health, if you like, David Cullen-Nan, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I think we're expecting to hear uh, some uh, announcements made in relation to children, but that there'll be recommendations rather than mandates and there may be requirements on people travelling in and out of the country. What are you hoping or expecting to hear from government? Yeah, a number of things, Michael. Uh, I suppose, first of all, I, I favour the personal responsibility approach. And if it is guidelines or advice that's given in relation to play dates and social activities, both for children and adults, I think we need to be in the space that we trust people to, to make the right uh, decisions. I think the vast majority of people have and will continue to do so. Uh, but what we need to watch is while we give public health advice, and obviously we all need to examine that, look to ourselves in terms of our social context and, and what we what we do over the next number of weeks. Uh, it will have consequences for businesses. It will have consequences for workers if, if there's premises which are open, but obviously less people availing of the services because of the public health advice. We need to make sure that the response is aligned and that the business supports and the supports for workers are also put in place. And I think what would be intolerable is if the public health message was saying one thing, that people should not go to premises or at least limit their social interactions but at the same time the government not properly supporting the businesses who would obviously be affected by the consequences of people heeding the public health advice so if we want if we want people to heed the public health advice it will have those consequences mm. and businesses and, and workers need to be supported so I hope that's part of the overall uh, approach that we see coming from government today. Given the nature of uh, things uh, in relation to pantos in particular, uh, you can very easily imagine a situation where parents will be between a, a rock and a hard place and the government might be saying, you can't go to pantos and the parents will be saying, oh yes, we can. Yes, I've heard that line used a few times, Michael, well done. Uh, that obviously is, is something that is problematic. But listen, I think if we bring it back to the personal responsibility, if it's the case that we're saying that pantos can go ahead and other activities can go ahead, but we're simply asking everybody, and I wouldn't single out children, but everybody, to exercise good judgment, then I think that's a good place for us to be in. Um, and I think that's what people need to do. So mm-hmm. I know in my own family and, and I myself will, will look at what I will do over the next number of weeks. If I can limit social interactions, I will. That's the advice which has been given. Um, and I think that's better than, than trying to enforce something that possibly mm. can't be enforced or closing business. So I'm supporting that overall approach. I suppose what, what I would want to see in addition to that, as I said, are the supports then because it is the case that people do adjust their social interactions. And we're hearing that already anecdotally 
from the hospitality sector, and mm. I'm sure we'll hear from uh, 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 services that provide uh, play um, activities for children, indoor ac- uh, play activities. Obviously, that will be affected. Yeah. They need to be supported. There's a difference, though, in cancelling a, a Christmas party because you probably haven't paid for it. Uh, and there's a lot of people uh, with five and six panto tickets, and they're not cheap. No, and from what yeah. I can see, mm-hmm. the advice isn't to cancel. It, it's simply that yeah. if somebody is going to a uh, panto, that's fine. But, you know, it, I, I'd be slow to say that people should just choose one thing over the other. I think mm-hmm. it's the better way to put it is people should use their own judgment and exercise good judgment. And yeah. I think people will. And my experience anyway, Michael, is people are already doing that. People don't mm-hmm. need to be told. People have already adjusted their uh, social context simply because of the levels of infection in the community. People will look out for themselves and their families and their children anyway. And I think if we treat people like adults and, and expect people to behave responsibly, the vast majority of people will. There will always be some people who will not, but the vast majority of people will. And I think that overall approach of personal responsibility is, is the better one, but it has to be matched, as I said then, mm. with supports where consequences arise from that. Okay, one thing we won't hear today is uh, that the government is going to subsidise antigen tests uh, because uh, the minister said yesterday that's not going to happen. You've uh, accused the government of penny-pinching. I am, and I I think it's worse than that. It's just out of touch because obviously antigen tests have come down in price and I welcome that. But equally, if we're saying to uh, households, and we are, that if there is a positive test in a house and then everybody in the household are all close contacts and have to... Uh, self-isolate or restrict their movements and take three antigen tests. If you have a family of three, four, five, six or more, that's a lot of antigen tests and a huge cost to those families. And if you look at our overall approach to COVID in relation to PCR testing, the rollout of the vaccine, the booster jabs have all been made freely available. And I think that is not the only reason, but is in part the reason why we've had a huge uptake of people getting testing uh, are tested walking into these uh, testing centres, the walk-in centres, and obviously the uh, exceptionally high uptake of the vaccine rollout. Of course, it's also that people want to protect themselves, but I think making it freely available has worked, and I think we should do the same with antigen testing, and that needs to be matched then with very clear public health advice, which which has been given in relation to the circumstances that people should use antigen tests. Mm-hmm. It should not be used as a replacement for PCR if you have symptoms then you have to uh, self-isolate or restrict your movements until you get uh, a negative PCR test. That's the advice, but you should get a PCR test. Antigen testing should be used for asymptomatic people, especially people who are in high-risk environments, and I think that's the advice which has been given. And obviously, people are being advised to use antigen tests more, and where they are, I think they should be freely available. So I think it was a mistake from from the minister, and it might be okay for, for politicians and for people who are on uh, high salaries to be able to afford to pay for multiple antigen tests for big families, but there's a lot of people, I would imagine, listening to this programme who can't afford 30 or 40 euro a week on antigen tests, and, and I think the government need to respond to that. Mm, it's a, a lot of money. Um, what about travel? I think the important part here in relation to travel is that we, we just stick very close to the public health advice. Um, my take on travel is that we don't move ahead of the public health advice, but certainly that we don't fall behind it. I actually welcome the measures which have been taken. I think we have been swift on this occasion to introduce uh, mandatory pre-departure PCR testing from people coming from the South African countries affected. 
it looks like there will be a requirement for antigen testing if the media reports are to be believed in relation to all travel. Uh, and obviously, whatever additional advice is is given to government. So I know there could be the possibility of uh, primary legislation now to enable mandatory hotel quarantine. That may be necessary as well. And where it is necessary, and when the public health advice is given, if it is given, obviously that needs to be heeded as well. Mm. Nobody wants to see measures put in place which are extreme or unnecessary. Uh, and even when mandatory hotel quarantine was put in place in the past, and I was very staunchly in favour, I always said that it should not be in place any longer than is necessary, but should be in place where it is necessary. And I would take the same approach now. All of these restrictions are quite difficult, but where they are necessary to limit the spread of, of any variant and to protect us, we obviously have to listen very closely to the public health advice. So my advice mm-hmm. to government is to stay in line and in step with the public health advice don't move ahead or don't fall behind of that advice. Okay. Uh, we don't know where we're going to be. Uh, we're kind of blindfolded to some degree because of uh, this new variant. Uh, there's uh, some things known about it, but a lot known about it. It seems to be particularly virulent. Uh, at the same time, though, it seems as though people are getting mild doses of COVID. Uh, there's a need for vigilance uh, and I suppose we're very concerned already because of uh, how Delta has uh, taken hold of the country and how many people have developed COVID uh, recently and the pressure that puts on the health service and so on. Uh, how concerned are you about this new variant adding to all of that? I'm as concerned as anybody else and, and obviously we all want to learn more about this variant as quickly as possible. We can't speed that up. Uh, I think one thing that I've learned over the course of the last few years is that we, we need to trust the science. We need to listen to what the scientific and medical experts say and they're learning more about this variant every day. And obviously what we're all watching is the severity of the, the virus and if it isn't that severe as, as was originally reported, obviously that would be great news. Um, but we, we have to be vigilant, and I think how you summed it up there is exactly right. We have to be cautious, we have to be vigilant. The government has to be on top of its game in relation to the first principles on how we respond to COVID. They haven't changed. It's test, trace, isolate, vaccinate. That means having capacity in PCR testing, getting antigen testing right. I think contact tracing in schools needs to be looked at as well as ventilation, and obviously then a timely role as a booster job. And I think if we get all of that right, we can put ourselves again in a strong position where we don't have to put in place additional restrictions or public health measures. So I think if we, if we get all of that right and then people listen to the public health advice and we all take personal responsibility but also the government gets its responses right, I think we can manage uh, this. Uh, there are unknowns in relation to this variant that I can't answer at this point nor can anybody else. So we'll just have to wait and see, Michael, what transpires over the next number of days. Yeah, indeed. Keep our fingers and toes crossed, uh, as the case may be. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning, as always. Thank you, David Cullinan, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to a guilty plea in the Central Criminal Court yesterday, a 52-year-old man, Gerard McKenna, pleaded guilty to cleaning up and removing evidence from the scene at or near Rathmullen Park in Drogheda with intent to impede the apprehension or prosecution of a person or persons knowing or believing that the said person or persons were guilty of the murder of Keen Mulready Woods. Let's uh, talk uh, to Stephen Breen, crime editor with uh, The Irish Sun. Good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed uh, for Good joining morning. us. Uh, did, did this take you by surprise? 
It did because I think um, we were all waiting uh, for the uh, the trial to go ahead. Next January, it was set aside um, for a three-week period uh, to take place, and then just at the last minute, you know, um, John McKenna pleads guilty you know, to the offence. So I think it's quite a significant development. I think it it shows the the level of the guard investigation that took place from the very start. He was one of thirteen people who were arrested, but. He's the first person in the investigation to uh, uh, to be convicted of an offence relating to this uh, terrible crime. Right. Um, I, I can't uh, uh, imagine uh, what he, he did. Uh, it's uh, gruesome stuff uh, because uh, uh, undoubtedly uh, the clean-up uh, was a very big job in itself because it was such a, a brutal murder. Yeah, well, you're, you're talking about um, Jared McKenna being uh, uh, someone who was trusted by the, the individuals who were uh, behind the, this terrible killing. Um, obviously, he has pleaded guilty to cleaning up and removing evidence. So, uh, you know, the full facts in relation to Jared McKenna's case haven't been, been given yet. They, they will be, you know, in, in Derby when he's sentenced. But it, it shows that he was involved in cleaning up and removing evidence. And, and we, we all know what happened to King Moretti Woods where... Mm. You know, he, he was uh, killed, He was his body was dismembered, and body parts found in Dublin and, and also in Drogheda as well. So it really was a, a, a gruesome crime, and uh, I think it's a good result for the guards that, that someone has been convicted, that the evidence was stacked against him, and, and obviously at, at the last minute he has decided to plead guilty to this. But, you know, there are still other people before the courts in relation to this. Absolutely. It's a, a good result for the guards, and it's a good result for all of us. Uh, as I say, my mind can't go there. So, uh, the killing of a, a child like that, he came already was just 17 years of age. Uh, it's dreadful to think of any involvement in it. Uh, and his uh, defence asked for a psychological report. Yes, that's the case as well. Like obviously, um, he's a 50, 52-year-old man. He's, he's well-known to the Gardaí in the Drogheda area. He wouldn't be someone who was considered a, a major player in the gang scene, but he has found himself connected to a, a gruesome crime that shocked everyone in Ireland. You know, the guards quickly identified him as someone who was an associate of those they believed were involved in this. And you also have you know, someone like the, the calibre of... Uh, um, other individuals uh, who were involved in this here, uh, Robbie Lawler is an individual who was shot dead in Belfast in uh, April 2020. He was also a prime suspect in this. So you have, you know, McKenna being associated with someone like this. So the the, the guards obviously were concerned and they did compile their evidence that they brought it before the court and he's now pleaded guilty. So it's a very strong case. Okay, so he he's in custody and he'll remain in custody, uh, I understand, uh, from uh, the Sun today up until the end of February, at uh, the end of February before he's sentenced. Yes, so the sentencing will take place uh, next year. Michael, obviously, there will be a lot of reports compiled as well. His defence will be compiling psychological reports too. Um, to ascertain, you know, the, the, the status of his psychological state before he is uh, uh, sentenced, but he, he has pleaded guilty, and you know, it, it is a, a specific offence to assisting an organised crime gang as well, where you're guilty to cleaning up and removing evidence. So it is a very serious offence, and you know, he, he should expect, you know, a very strong sentence. Okay, uh, what next then? Um, I take it uh, the guards will be hoping uh, that there'll be a domino effect after this uh, and that they'll be able to bring other people before the courts on charges. Yeah, well, two men are already before the courts and they've both been charged with murder, but also like a number of fives have been sent to the DPP. A, a total of 13 people have now been arrested by the Guardi investigating this case, but it shows that you have the, the investigation being led 
by uh, detectives from Drogheda, but also working closely with their colleagues in uh, North Dublin and the North Central Division. The body parts were found in Kudok and also in the Drumcondra area of Dublin. So the investigation is very much ongoing. And if the DPP comes back with further recommendations uh, with charges for people involved in the periphery of this crime, people are involved in supporting those the guards believe were involved in it, then there could be more people brought before the courts. Very good. We leave there for the moment, Stephen. Thank you indeed for joining us. As always, Stephen Brain is a crime editor with uh, the Irish Sun. Now let's go to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, who's on uh, the line, because as you know, the Cabinet has been meeting today, uh, following on from uh, that meeting with uh, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, and indeed uh, the leaders of uh, the three parties, Michal Martin, Leo Vradker, and Eamon Ryan. Government taking recommendations from Neffet to uh, the full meeting of government today. And as you've been hearing, uh, there will be advice, it seems, at this stage. It, it won't be a diktat, but there'll be advice for parents in relation to play dates and indeed to pantos. Uh, either do one or the other this week and think about what you're doing. Uh, there won't be anything on antigen tests, as we've been hearing, uh, but there may be something on travel. Sean, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, there's a, a lot for the Cabinet uh, to look at today. What are you expecting to hear after that meeting? Yeah, look, as you say, Michael, there's lots going on at the minute. It's a little bit overwhelming uh, for a lot of people, I'm sure. So out of today, we're going to get a couple of things. The latest recommendation is one on travel. There was a briefing last night for the three government party leaders and the health minister from senior health officials, including the CMO, and they uh, discussed the Omicron variant. Said that really at the minute it's too early uh, to tell what impact it's going to have, what prevalence maybe in Ireland and, and really internationally we're still only getting our teeth into this variant so that the, the official said it would be two weeks before we would really know what the impact on Ireland would be and how, how much worry there should be. In the meantime they're going to recommend and Neffet have recommended indeed to Cabinet, they're discussing it at the moment, um, to further restrict travel into Ireland so requiring everyone coming into the country to have a, a negative COVID test. Now it would have to be a laboratory test, what that means is either a negative PCR test or a professionally done antigen test. So not an antigen test you do yeah. yourself at home, but one you, you pay for privately um, to get back into the country, and that would be within 72 hours of travel from um, from anywhere, including Great Britain. Interestingly, uh, Great Britain isn't uh, their new PCR test. Don't look, apply for people travelling from Ireland to there, but they will apply the other way around, and there won't be any tests coming from Northern Ireland because of the total impracticality to do that, so that kind of back door remains open. Separately, then, we're expecting stuff on schools. This is the effort recommendation from last week that over uh, nines should have to wear masks in schools, in shops, and in on public transport mm. in all of the settings that over 13s basically did, and the rule will be over third class in schools. So there may be some eight-year-olds or whatever in, in third class who that would apply to as well. And the other part is to restrict, really, their social activities and the Taoiseach on the way into the Cabinet this morning said that that's not just going to be for children, that they're going to be recommending yeah. everybody pair back their social activities across all of society, but in particular for children, what the recommendation is likely to be is uh, basically one a week outside school. So you're, you're, right. you will be able to go to a panto or to a communion mm. or whatever, but if you do that, don't do all the other things, don't do the play date, don't do whatever for uh, that week at least. And so will mask wearing in schools for children be advisory or will it be a mandatory? Still waiting on official confirmation on that, but the word is advisory. The word mm. this is not will be a, this won't be a regulation. This will be more advice. Now, as to the why of that, why it would be that way for 
one set of people and not for another. We don't have a, a very clear answer to it at the moment, but at the minute it looks like it's going to be advice and the social activity stuff will be advisory as well. It's not going to be a regulation. Okay, and uh, Dahl will sit here this afternoon and I take it sparks will fly uh, over the decision not to subsidise antigen tests. Oh, well, but I think so. I mean, look, it's been um, it's been talked about, the delay has been talked about a lot in the Dáil over the last week and Minister Donnelly sort of just dropped this in there in an interview on RTE yesterday rather than any sort of announcement and said that the market had kind of intervened and caught up. He said some places have them for as little as 150 and other places selling them for €3. Euro. Now, uh, I certainly haven't seen any of them in the shops I passed this morning. I had a quick look into a few places and they were still €6, €7 euro for an antigen oh. test. So it, it, it is not widespread. There are some places that are offering from that kind of price. Uh, but it is not widespread, and so I think he is going to get a little bit of a filleting for that. Interestingly, might come up in the door today as well. If certainly not, if not today, then during the week. Cabinet also due to discuss the return of mandatory hotel quarantine. Now, to be clear about it, this is the legislation that gives that power. That legislation lapsed last month, so at the minute the government doesn't have the power to enforce that. And the health minister signals he'll be looking to pass legislation to give them that should they need it to combat Omicron, but there is no suggestion this morning that any, any particular country is going to be added to that list um, when it is eventually set up again. All right, uh, an awful lot of uh, important stuff for the government to deal with uh, in relation uh, to COVID, obviously, uh, but I take it the Micah redress scheme will be equally important to the government uh, and indeed uh, there'll be a, a lot of attention on how it goes down uh, in the back benches. A lot of eyes, I take it, on Joe McHugh, Derek Cleary and Charlie McConnelloke. Absolutely. Now, Charlie McConnell has spoken the way into Cabinet this morning. He seems fairly happy with the deal and he uh, seems to suggest he thinks the residents and people who need it will be as well, some 6,600 or so people across uh, particularly Donegal and Mayo who are looking for this. The change of the scheme is no longer a 90%, it is a 100% redress scheme um, for the rebuilding of the homes, but it is capped at €420,000. That's up from the 250 thousand cap that was there in the past. There is going to be a cap on the amount they can be paid per square foot. So the minister very much saying we're not giving a blank cheque for people to, you know, rebuild lavish homes or rebuild more lavishly. There will be guidelines in place. The suggestion had been that was €138. Um, however, sourcing housing saying that's an average figure. It may be higher for, for other people who need it to be higher. Also included then in that scheme is going to be ten grand for rental accommodation allowance while people are having work obviously done, uh, an independent appeals mechanism for homeowners, and then more of a review into how we actually got here. So Darrell O'Brien intending to appoint a senior council to review how the defective uh, concrete block crisis occurred. So I presume that will include Pyrite and not just MICA as well. Mm. And that a new building standards regulator and a building register are going to be put in place to try and prevent this uh, happening again in the future. Okay. Uh, Can we see or expect or contemplate any resignations? Hard to tell at the minute, I think, mm. uh, very early on in the day. Yeah, okay. Okay. It looks at the minute, if McConnell is happy with it, he knows he's not going to get re-elected if this scheme isn't right. And that's the, the bare bones of his job as not just a minister, but as a TD. He seems to be fairly happy with it. We'll see what Derek Cleary and Joe McHugh in particular have to say. Um, but at the minute, I think a lot of people are just going to wait and see the detail and we'll see what the families involved have to say, first of all, because, of course, they're the people who are going to be affected most. Very good. Thank you, Sean. As always, our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents uh, Garda are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist uh, with uh, those investigations. We go to Navin Station for the report this week, and we're joined by Garda Fiona Kerr. Good morning to you, and thanks as always for joining us. We're going to begin with an appeal for information about the identity of a man who was discovered uh, deceased in County Meath over 30 years ago. Good morning, Michael. That's right. Guardian and Trim are appealing to the public for information in respect of an unidentified male who was located deceased in Bracetown, County Meath, on the 18th of April in 1991. So this male was believed to have been between 45 and 55 years of age. He was approximately 5 foot 5 inches in height with a medium build. He had light brown hair receding on the forehead with grey on the sides and he had brown eyes. He also had signs of past dental work. So when he was discovered, this male was wearing a grey herringbone tweed jacket, a white shirt, red vest, grey trousers, size 34, and black leather zip-up boots, size 8. And Gardy also discovered a St. Christopher's medal in his pocket. So despite extensive inquiries to date, Gardy have been unable to identify this man and a review was conducted this year in close consultation with the Garda Missing Person Unit. And the body was exhumed from the cemetery in Navan and County Meath um, in August this year. And it was established that the deceased may have had an issue with his right knee, which may have caused him pain or discomfort and caused him to walk with a limp. So through inquiry so far, Gardy believed this male may have been Irish or from the UK, but they're keeping an open mind on this. Um, and it's believed that the male had been sleeping rough in Bracetown for up to a week before his body was discovered. Gardy believe a family member or maybe a childhood connection may have brought him back to the area. So it's also believed that he may have attended a local GAA match on the evening prior to his death. So I just want to uh, assure people listening that this is not a criminal investigation and the sole purpose of this appeal is to identify this man and notify his family. So anyone with information is asked to contact Trim Garda Station or the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-1. Indeed, somebody must remember the man. Somebody listening to us must remember the man. And uh, there's a, a sense of decency uh, needed in terms of coming forward with whatever information they may have. Uh, we're going to uh, report on a couple of burglaries next. That's right. Nav and Garda are investigating a burglary which occurred in the Kilberry Heights area on Thursday, November 25th between the hours of 7.40am and 5.40pm. So anyone who is in the area around these hours and noticed anything suspicious or if you can assist in any way to please contact Navangarda Station. And on the same date at 6.30pm a burglary took place in a house in Trim while the owner was upstairs. The burglar was disturbed and left empty handed. So we have seen that break-ins in the winter months typically occur between 5pm and 8pm. So we'd ask listeners to check all their external lights and make sure they're working. And if you have a house alarm, to please use it. And we know that the main bedroom and the hot press are the two areas that will be searched by criminals. Um, Cash and jewellery are the top items they're looking for. So just be vigilant in the lead up to Christmas and report anything unusual to your local guard station. Okay, the main bedroom and the hot press. Very interesting. All right, uh, we've uh, had some mild weather today and indeed yesterday, but we're going back uh, to the cold weather, it seems, again tomorrow. And uh, some advice for people not to be taken by surprise, I take it. That's right. With frosty weather upon us now, we'd like to advise motorists never to leave their vehicles unattended when it's unlocked and the engine is running whilst defrosting in the morning during the cold weather. So when defrosting your vehicle, defrost externally using de or warm water 
or if you could if you turn the car on please remain inside the car and take the time to defrost the windscreen thoroughly and make sure you have full frost-free 180 degree vision with clear windscreens and front and side windows so if you need to use your car for essential travel during the cold spell ensure your car has been fully de-iced warmed inside before driving and ensure the tyres and the wipers are adequate for cold driving conditions. And just to make sure you give yourself a few extra minutes in the morning to get your car defrosted and ready for your journey. Two burglaries in Laytown next. That's right. Two burglaries occurred between 5.45pm and 8pm on the 26th of November in the Seaview housing estate in Laytown. So the person or persons involved came in through the back door by smashing a hole in the glass on the back door and unlocking the door from the inside. So some jewellery was taken from one of the properties. So we were appealing to listeners this morning if they were in the vicinity of the area and noticed anything unusual or suspicious to contact the Guardian Leighton and their help would be much, much appreciated. And again, that occurred between 5.45pm and 8pm on the 26th of November in Seatown Housing Estate, Seaview Housing Estate in Leighton. And we'll finish up with the theft of copper wire. That's right. Last week on the 19th of November in Lobenstown, County Mead, there was an incident of phone cable having been cut, approximately 150 metres of it. Um, there was a second incident in the same locality last week also with copper wire, and it has occurred a number of times during the summer. So it usually occurs during the late hours into the early hours, with the culprits often climbing ladders and stripping it down. So we're asking locals in the general area of Nobber, Drumconrath and Lobenstown just to be vigilant and to be aware that this type of crime is happening. Okay, thank you indeed. Garda Fiona Kerr of Navin Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Thanks to John, who was on the phone to us. John says he thought he was hallucinating or something when he heard the minister, uh, Stephen Donnelly, say that pantomimes can go ahead, but that children shouldn't attend them. Just who does the minister think he is, uh, or who the target audience is for the pantos? Why would any... Uh, company go to the trouble and expense of staging a show when its main audience has been told to stay away. Ludicrous, he says. Why didn't the minister say pantos are cancelled and the government will pay those involved the full pup payment so that they're not out of pocket? Thanks uh, for that, John. Uh, I think he's saying you can go, but don't go to a play date if you go to a panto. Uh, Nora says, uh, Nora, a bigger pardon, says uh, these new measures announced by government are a joke. So kids can either have a trip to the panto or a play date, but not both. Why can't this government just take the tough stance for once and for all and cancel all activities outside of school hours for a week or two until the numbers come back down instead of pussyfooting around and not make any real decisions? Thank you indeed, uh, Nora, for that. Uh, some strong feelings there. Uh, as always, and uh, good to hear from you. Now, we were talking a little bit earlier on about uh, this new variant of uh, the coronavirus, uh, the Omicron. Uh, let's hear a little bit about it from South Africa. As you know, and as, you, as your viewers know, we have a very high um, HIV-infected population, and we've seen a number of individuals who are not biologically suppressed um, that they can be infected with SARS-CoV-2 for months. Um, we've seen in one individual up to 11 months. And so what happens in somebody who has prolonged infection with this virus is their body is continually trying to fight the virus and the virus is continually trying to fight the body. And so that is what forces the virus to mutate and evolve um, because it's getting all this pressure from the individual that's, that is, it's infecting. Um, and so th- that is the real concern, is that we need to be able to vaccinate 
um, as many people as possible, but also to focus on people who are immunosuppressed, um, like our HIV-infected population. It's fascinating. I think uh, that's uh, Dr. Jeanal Beeman uh, speaking to SABC News in South Africa. Thanks to Barry who was in touch with us. Barry says the government here are making uh, a mistake uh, because they're leaving it up to people's common sense and good judgment when limiting social interactions. Unfortunately, Barry says the truth is that simply people don't have either. That's why the government need to come out with definitive rules saying you can do this but you can't do that. Otherwise we'll continue to say on this roller coaster of rising and falling case number some people can't be trusted to make the right decision he says. Mary thinks the government is being influenced too much by businesses uh, in taking decisions. Uh, they should be concentrating on what is the best thing to do for public health and safety, not on what is the best thing to help the business industry. Yeah, I think it's trying to get the balance between the two. Uh, we all have to live and we all have to make a living in order to live. Uh, but uh, can't live if uh, we're sick with COVID, obviously. Uh, and it's a, a delicate bal- balancing act for the government. Uh, Pat and Carrick McCross says antigen tests are fairly expensive, especially if you have a big family. Whatever happened to we are all in this together. The cost of living has gone through the roof and fuel prices are crazy. It's very easy to say people buy the tests and to stay at home if you have symptoms. Uh, a lot of people can't afford to stay off work or buy these tests. And that is the reality. And thanks to Pat McDade as well. Pat, I was waiting on your text. Thank you very much indeed. He says, David Cullinan is not the Shadow Health Minister. Uh, maybe if Duncan Smith ever call, talks to us, uh, we'll call him the Shadow Health Minister. Uh, is that a deal? Uh, thanks, uh, Pat, uh, for your text to the programme. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.